Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Zenju Earthland Manual. She is a poet, a drum medicine woman, and an ordained Zen priest in the Soto Zen lineage of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. Thank you, Zenju, for being with me today on this Spark Zen podcast. Thank you for inviting me. First, let me say that I was very moved by your new book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, and inspired by your writing and your unearthing of these shamanic bones to a tradition that I feel like I just stumbled into from deep, deep wells of suffering and found myself now, like yourself, an ordained Zen priest. So I just wanted to say that I really appreciate all the hard work, dedication, research, and your embodied experience of the shamanic bones of Zen. I want to just start a little uh, earlier, though, and ask you if you could just summarize how you came to Buddhism from your Church of Christ upbringing. All of the gateways, spiritual and religious gateways, were just open, and I just walked in. I fell into everything except for Christianity because my parents put me there. But eventually I did fall into Christianity when somewhere in my 20s, I began to really see the deep mystical aspects of Christianity that I was not hearing in the pulpit. So, but I was aware of it then. So after that, I ended up, I think in my late 20s, experiencing African religion through a family of a tribe, came to Los Angeles and because of who I was encountering at that time in my life, I, I got the opportunity to be with them and to be in ceremony and to witness their love for spirit and their love for ritual ceremony. So Buddhism just happened. I never thought I'd be in Buddhism. I never was interested in it. I'd hear people say the word and say Buddha, but it you know, didn't mean anything, which is kind of what happens to Christians. <laughs> you just don't hear, you're like, okay, I can't hear, can't hear you. <laughs> so I was invited to a meeting at that time. Nishiren did, with Soka Gakkai International, did the, what's called Shakabuku. And that's inviting um, folks to a, a time together to chant. I went with them and then 15 years later, <laughs> I was still there and um, very taken by the profound teachings of Buddha and was amazed that it felt like I had been longing for those teachings, even as a Christian. And I always tell people I found God in Buddhism. That's where I found God. And so, you know, it, it's there for me. Uh, even if it isn't there for others. I love that phrase, I found God in Buddhism. How did your Nichiren Buddhism path intersect with yeah. your Soto Zen Buddhist path? I didn't even know I was leaving Nichiren or Soko Gakkai. I was at a, a 
three-week intensive at San Francisco Zen Center. And it happened right while I was walking doing Kihan, I realized I had left right in, the, in one moment. I was like, oh my God. So I said, I better go back and tell them I'm not there because I was a leader and I had folks I was supposed to take care of and that kind of thing. So I went back and they still didn't quite get it either. They said they, that they never knew that I left. I still know them. They're still part of my family. They're, they visit me. I visit them. They're, st- they're my Facebook friends. I, I watch them. I've known them for, you know, 30, 40 years. And so I'm glad I went to Nishram because my introduction into Buddhism was with people of color, mostly black people. So mm-hmm. I entered Buddhism with black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I was very uh, fortunate in that. Yes, I, as you're saying that, what comes up is just remembering like that, oh, Buddha was not a white-bodied person. I think somehow us white-bodied people maybe forget that or we just are not attuned to that because being white-bodied is, well, it's the normative power structure, it's that, it's, but it's not really the majority of people anymore in the United States. So as you're saying that, there was a sense of like openness or relief, like, oh, yeah. So your introduction to Buddhism then with people of color, much different from, as you know, as you state, from other people of color. Yeah, just from the makeup of Soka Gakkai and the makeup of Nishiran, and often a sect that's ignored, you know, but that's where I learned concentration, shamatha. They don't call it that. They don't call it concentration. But it's, that's where I learned it. Nishran himself was a Zen at one time until he brought in his own teachings. Then uh, the people who brought uh, Sokagakai were widows and widowers, who of uh, people who lost their family in World War II. And so they felt like they had something to offer people of despair. And so when they came to this country, that's what they did. They went to communities of despair. So the majority of American Western Sokagakai, Black or uh, Latino. So it's kind of the way I think it came and was transmitted, which is different than how the other traditions were brought in and transmitted into the Western world. While we're on this topic, what do you feel is the appeal for people of color with practicing Nichiren Buddhism as opposed to and I say as opposed to, I don't know if there's like a real choice, if that's just what's available or what they resonate with without knowing about Zen. Or do you feel there's a way that, as you said, about communities of despair resonating? And even though I felt like I was in despair, it's how yeah. I got to Zen. Right. I'm just right. curious what your understanding and experience is. Again, it goes back to the structure and an invitation. So we don't invite, to Zen doesn't invite. You just show up on the doorstep. And, and Nishan, you're invited, and, and I think that still is, if we met, I would invite you. And so it's not like all of our, all the people around me were Black. There were people I knew, people I had a connection with. So the first and foremost is to have a, a relationship, a, to develop friendship. That is the difference, rather than here's the practice, start doing it, here's the ceremony. So there's a relationship that's already in place. So my friends said, come on, you're going. And I knew them for a little while. I mean, enough that we were going to go to dinner after the meeting, right? 
And so that relationship brought me in, not, and then when I got in, I was like, oh no, you know, <laughs> I thought, oh shoot, I, what am I doing? So then you kind of make your, your decision to leave or to stay and, and the leadership just holds your hand the entire way some leaders who helped me who weren't black. They were of different, you know, backgrounds and they had different things to offer me. And and so you could talk to a leader any time of the week. You just sign up for one of the interviews or sessions for practice discussion and everybody sits out in the waiting room together, chanting and waiting to go in and, and talk to somebody about their lives. I appreciate your uh, talking a little bit about that. It does feel just warmer, like a warmer experience. And the invitation, which of course is an extension of the warmth and the relationship, knowing that you're welcome before you even step through the door yeah. is invaluable and makes me curious as to how white-bodied centers could extend that invitation. You don't just pick people because they're colored. If you don't have the friends already that, that kind of in your life and in your world, even if you don't invite them, you, they can't even witness the practice in you. So right. who is witnessing you is who's going to come. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful and profound. And I speak from, from my own experience, which is obviously the only experience I can speak from how my, my world got less and less colorful as I moved away from my hometown outside of the Bronx in New York. So it's, so for me too, I don't have many friends of color, so nobody can witness the experience of Buddhism flowing through me either. And I think that's the one of the huge shadow sides of any institution, especially white-bodied institutions, religious institutions, is that it becomes very insular. Let me add one thing, because it's very important, because Nishran is not a residential practice at all. Neither is Spirit Rock or any other places where there is, where you're living together. That That's a whole nother overlay on practice. What is the motivation? for taking on such a, a practice. I think that that's an important thing to look at too, where you're kind of, you're forced into a Sangha, which is kind of the way family is, right? So you're kind of forced into this, this coming together with people. And the only thing that you can do when you're, you're forced into that is, is find, if there is that place, <laughs> is find the refuge. That's why refuge is so important, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. If you don't have those three treasures, then you won't be able to, to, to remain in, in the practice. I don't care what practice it is. <laughs> you know, if, you don't, if, the, if the teacher and the teachings in the community, it's just not gonna work. All of that fit for me in Nishan. The Buddha, Dharma, Sangha all fit very nicely together. And yet, you found yourself in a three-week intensive at San Francisco Zen Center right. City Center. That's right. Which is where I currently yeah. abide. Yeah. So it was time for me to stop chanting and to return to silence. And my first book was reading Category, Dan and Category's book, Returning to Silence. 
that title grabbed me. I remember being in the bookstore. They knew I was new at the bookstore. They said, oh, you should read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And I said, no, I need returning to silence. And I handed them the book. They had no idea I had already had 15 years of Dharma practice because they'd never seen me before. Must be my first time. So I, I got that book because it was time for me to return to silence. I had just had a very big lucid dream before I entered Zen and had an oracle birth. And that, that's the uh, Black Angel cards, right? The 36 yeah. oracle. That's now um, out of print. Out of they, print. Yeah, yeah. They came out long before I got to Zen Center. So I got to work with many, many people, many circles in the world. So before I even got to Zen Center, I was already teaching a lot in the world. People knew me, knew my name. I had presence, visibility, the saying that I'm having now. I already had. So this is not new to me. I was becoming more and more famous. I mean, people knew me in the streets and it was hard for me. <laughs> I guess it was who I was, the Oracle, but the fame was not. And so I didn't know how to do it. So sometimes I say I escaped into Zen and then <laughs> to get away from all of that. But then as I went through the 20 years, I knew that it was to center me and to help me see myself not as me, the relative me alone, but to actually feel the spirit and divine life that that was manifested through the oracle. To, a, to be able to see that, even use words for it and talk about it. I had no words for what had happened to me. And I had met many, many mediums and healers when that, that oracle came because they wanted to see who did this, who is she? Where did she come from? And they wanted to test me. And they did, they tested me. And I didn't know they were testing me, but later I realized they were. Of course, I passed all the tests, but you know, that's how I, I, end, I stayed and I began to see Zen as that portal. In your book, you, you talk about systemic oppression and that no religious institution, no religion, no religious tradition is without its systemic oppression. However, you say that nowhere else other than Zen could you find an environment or practice where you could make daily ritual offerings in community, including, you say, including my very breath for the sake of humanity. And I just love, I, I love that phrase, your very breath. So could you talk about how you feel that Soto Zen has helped transform this uh, oppression that you were experiencing, even while you were within an institution or tradition that was exhibiting systemic oppression. Right. So fortunately and unfortunately, I live every day in the midst of systemic oppression. I go to the store, post office, market, wherever it's, it's there. So when I got to Zen Center, it wasn't a shock. Has been all my, I've lived with it all my life. So each gateway, including Christianity, Africa, all each gateway was this opening to seeing how, how this life might be lived fully, how it might be lived fully. So I think some people feel, well, there's less oppression over there, less racism over there, you know, that kind, because they're doing all of this, but that's not true. It's just, it's just not true. We know this. And that each of us walk in with our racism, our internalized uh, racism. We walk in with this, all of this stuff. 
as our relative lives in this country. Now, I haven't lived in any other country, so I only can talk about right here in the United States. So when I entered Zen, this is what I say, why I say why this book is important to me, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, is because I could see in every single gateway, including the church, my church, which did not allow and still does not allow women preachers. I probably would be a Christian minister if, I, if they had. <laughs> so, you know, whoa, and it's still today in the 21st century. So it's everywhere. And so what I saw is that ritual and ceremony as a life, as a person, was the path for transformation and understanding life. If I'm at um, Zen Center and it's predominantly male and white at the time it was, I think it's definitely less male than it was when I first came, then I can be in the midst of that and trust that what I'm doing is going to affect all of humanity because we all know transformation is here. Now, this is the internal work. So the outer work is out there. And like I tell people, if I and I did, I did a lot. Of, I was a social activist. I did a lot of work on the outside, but I didn't come to Zen Center to do that work. There was no need for me to do that. I came to offer flowers, mm-hmm. as black as I am. Mm-hmm. Shocking. You came to offer flowers? Yeah, just like you. This is where my ancestors have brought me. Now, if you can't understand that, then you're, you're definitely stuck. Are we working in the spiritual world to only get rid of the bad things in life? We're working toward that by being who we are. This is what we've chosen, or you choose psychology, sociology, or social justice. There are many pathways. I didn't choose it. Could you talk about this word shaman? You say that it comes from the Tungus language of ancient Mongolia. I was very cautious and know that the word has been misused and, and taken, appropriated, and I let people know I understood all of that but I wanted to go on and use it in order to bring Buddhism, not only Zen, but I can't just say Buddhism because I haven't been in every tradition. So I had no right to say Buddhism, but I believe it's all Buddhism. That like any other religion has a indigenous practice, earth-based beginnings and earth-based bones. So when I say shamanic, I'm, I'm saying that there are experiences of awakening. Whenever you're dealing with experience of awakening, and may I add transformation and, and healing to all of that, then then you're, you're, that's what my experience has been with shamans that I have worked with. I have the also, which is not in the book, the uh, fortune to have worked with many diviners from South Africa and here and West Africa and, you know, different places. And I've had experiences with them, the Dahomeans that I talk about, that they were all diviners. So we all have these experiences. You might see something here, something beyond, something that we, we never thought we would see. This is where Zen says, don't make anything of it, right? Don't get all caught up in that fascinated and i think that's true in some ways but is you have to look at what is that experience or was that experience transformative healing and awakening because that's the point there's no point in me putting out an oracle if nothing happened to me like oh i had this dream 
and I told everybody about it and what came through it. And if it had did nothing, that dream, that medicine is dead. I wouldn't have been able to breathe life into it if it didn't change me. And it did, it changed me. That's how I got to Zen because of the Oracle. It, it changed me. I wouldn't have said when I got the Oracle, oh, wow, I'm going to Zen now. <laughs> That was not what happened, but my eyes were open to things that were impossible. Well, you mentioned in the book that word shaman might come from actually the Chinese word for Buddhist monk, Uh right? So I thought that was uh, interesting. Right. We did a little bit of research. Yeah. A little bit of research to see that everything's interrelated. So even though we could say that belongs to this group, it can't never completely anything, nothing can never completely belong to one group of people, especially if another group takes on the activity of that thing, then it changes. I mean, that's how Buddhism, right? Changed over the years from country, country to country. Look what, look what Thich Nhat Hanh did with Buddhism, create his own order. So, so yeah. what is it that you mean by shamanic bones? First of all, Zen has shamanic elements. And someone asked me, this is a very simple answer here, asked me, can you give me some kind of activity, shamanic activity that I could practice when I get off this call or this talk? And I said, sit. Oh, that doesn't sound so mysterious and sacred. That's right. That's right. Because we're not taught it to be that to sit upon the earth. We're just sitting because we got 45 minutes and the next 45 minutes, we're going to be chanting. And the next time we're going to be eating breakfast. And we're not taught that that sit is sitting upon the earth. That's what shamans do. That's what Buddha did. That's what we're doing. Some people do sit outside, which is wonderful. Some of the sanghas do that, but that's it. So I said, sit upon the earth, sit, sit in your seat, in your house. Offer, make offerings to ancestors. That's shamanic. So how it is a part of bones of Zen is that it goes back that before Buddhism arrived, there were indigenous practices already in place in which people were making offerings and they had all kinds of things they did before Buddhism came about. Then when Buddhism came, these things did get fused into Buddhism and then cut off along the way what didn't fit wherever it went. You mentioned that in China at some point, that intuitive shamanic energy was sort of pushed aside to have it be more of a rational or intellectual pursuit. There was a period in which the Japanese themselves had this movement of anti-ritual, which I talk a little bit about, where no toys, no trinkets, no just sit. And so that's one thing, that's a different kind of look at anti-ritual. But then there's this way in which even calling it shamanic, all of a sudden it became, when I'm talking about Zen, I'm not talking about Zen to people. I notice this in all the talk, or I'm talking about color people or something, <laughs> you know, like you said, it came from color people. So the whole practice came, Buddhism came from color people. So it, it's just detached from of the people. So there's Shinto, Shingon, Taoism, name it, was all there. But the emperors loved in Japan, I only can speak of Japan, Soto Zen loved the Zen. But I, what I love about Dogen is he did not allow his sanctuary to be uh, bought and, and uh, a temple made 
by the emperor. He said no. Dogen is one of my favorite readings and teachings. He's a poet. He's extremely intuitive, psychic, shamanic in every way. I'm not the first one to talk about Zen being shamanic. There are so many books long before this one that I put in, put in some reading time reading these books, but they're all in academia. And so I asked someone who is in academia, why isn't this talked about? Why don't they just say Zen is shamanic? They're afraid of their reputation. If they say that, they're going to be demoted in some way. One interviewer said, I don't know why they don't excommunicate you for what you've been saying about Zen is if there is any excommunication. And I said, why? All of them endorsed the book, although that page was not in the book. The most important page is not in the book. It's not there. Oh. Tygen Layton endorsed this book. Mm -hmm. Alice Sanaki, Norman Fisher, all the Zen teachers endorsed this. The publisher dropped that page. So it makes it seem that I got no support. And all the Zen teachers at Zen Center supported this book. Did Shambhala say why they took that page out? We don't know what happened. It'll come up in the next printing. Oh yeah, right. So, okay, it probably will. However, when something comes out like that, especially when a person of color writes it, they think it's just the color vision. Like I'm just having a vision of being black. Well, when this is a vision of all the teachers at San Francisco Zen Center. Well, I would say the majority of the ones I talked to, because there are some that probably would say, this is crazy. No matter what I write, my books will go into a race teacher category. If I wrote a book on Dogen and I tested it out to see if I could write about Dogen. I wish you would. I did. Yeah. I, I tested it out. Uh -huh. And they took that article and had every Zen teacher read it to make sure I knew what I was talking about, about Dogen, because I wasn't talking about being black. The only reason I found out, because one of the teachers said, I read your article, that meant he was re a reviewer because the article hadn't come out. And the article, it came out, it's about enlightenment and thinking that it's okay to think, because Dogen always talked about, it's okay to think, and you better think, basically. <laughs> And he talks about the tangle between thinking, delusion, and enlightenment. And I talked about his teaching on Shinto intimacy. Mm -hmm. So that article did get printed. No one read it really, because it wasn't talking about race. Mm -hmm. And same thing happened with my book, The Deepest Peace. It didn't go anywhere because this black teacher is talk not talking about blackness or whiteness. She's not talking about the Zen centers, the this center, the oppression. She's not talking about anything. And who the hell wants peace from her? She can't write about peace because she lives in the midst of systemic oppression. But that's exactly why I wrote that book. Hmm. And then people were like, what are we supposed to do with this? And I did that on purpose, actually. I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere too much. I knew it because everybody's still back there on the way of tenderness. And no one's going to read the rest, but I'm going to keep writing it because these books aren't for now. I'm so thrilled that yeah. you did write this one because it speaks to my bones. And yeah, my, I've been getting good feedback from folk about what it's done for their practice. Some people are coming back to the practice so they can understand it. Somebody asked, well, then what are we doing? I said, well, the most very important thing did get transmitted mm. and transmitted fully. So it's not like we don't have nothing. What's yes. the most important thing that got transmitted to the Western world? No matter if it's Zen, Vipassana, whatever, what is it? 
Oh, I'm feeling a little put on the spot. That's <laughs> okay. So for me, the most important thing that got transmitted is uh, Zazen, as you say in the book, is the yeah. portal for us to become embodied, to feel our original nature embodied in our bones and our marrow and our blood. Teach the it. You're unseen, yeah. the wisdom that runs through all things, the unconditioned made manifest through Zenju, through Heather, through the microphone, through everything yes. in this universe. Yes. Is what has been transmitted. What's not been transmitted uh, is as you're transmitting in this profound book, uh -huh. uh, Zazen as ritual. Uh, but it has been. It has it's been. Ignored. It's ignored because okay. I copied this. That's why I wanted Tigan's Tigan's yes. endorsement because I it's right from his writings. Right, the uh, zazen as enactment ritual. Yes, an you, important piece. I'm speaking more personally because when I yeah. read your book, yeah, I feel like oh, even though I was the Eno, you know, the supervisor of the meditation hall at Tassajara, yeah, I was not steeped in, I was not steeped in any of this. Right, it was a beautiful yeah. experience. And I felt more reverence for the rituals and the ceremonies because I was in that role. I think that explanation would not always help. A spiritual path is demonstrated to it because if it's told in detail, then what I experience and what you experience, you'll be looking at what I experience. That book's a little bit dangerous too. Shamanic Bones is in, you may not feel the breath that you're breathing for humanity. That was a moment. That was a shamanic moment for me that happened in my breathing. And nobody told me that either. Some things cannot be explained, but I think when we're talking Zen and we're talking about practice, not even Zen, when we're talking about practice, I think that's why it's so important to share the story. If you happen to have an opportunity to be on the Dharma seat, as many of us have, that, that seat is to not necessarily awaken us only to the, the horrors and suffering of the world, but to, to talk about how the practice, when you were met with that horror and suffering or lived through it, how the bowing and the offering affected that and impacted. Now, how could you write a book like that, Zenju, and, and you were in this predominantly white male situation? <laughs> because I was in the ritual. Everywhere I go, everywhere I go with this black skin, everywhere I go. It's not like it's on my mind. So what is, what is on my mind? What am I walking with? I'm walking with what I learned in ceremony and ritual. That's what I'm walking with. Because if I didn't, the pain would be so paralyzing. I would have committed the suicide I was going to commit. Because I was, I would have been gone, but thank whoever or whatever brought me into the world of ritual and ceremony, regardless of the ignorance of human beings. I, I, I bow to the earth. I make offerings to those ancestors that they had anything to do with kicking me through that door. A white-bodied Zen. It's not a white-bodied Zen. No, but through, the, through this particular door. Yeah, yeah it wasn't white-bodied for me. It's black-bodied. I don't have a white-bodied Zen. No. I can't have a white-bodied Zen. But the whiteness that was in Zen Center was in my elementary school. So that's the world. That's the world for me.
that's the world. Mm -hmm. What is the journey here for this black child who made it into adulthood? What is it for, for me? When I walk out the door, nobody's gonna say, oh, there's Zinju, the Zen priest. All they see is a round black woman who was bald headed. They don't see nothing else. They may decide to kill me just because of what I look like. And I have been assaulted. So how do you live when you're being haunted and possibly and have been assaulted and could be assaulted and injured even more and more and more? So you can't stop and roll out your resume. It doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is how I'm going to walk through it even if I do get killed. In that moment, where am I going to be? Because that moment is possible. It's possible anywhere. I mean, people are walking up in churches and temples. Those places of traditionally of sanctuary are no longer sanctuaries in that respect. That red door back in the medieval times signified that this was a sanctuary and people respected that. And no more, there's the hatred permeates everywhere. The racism and oppression with like, I, that's why I said it's everywhere. And I have been in everything, like I said, even in the Lakota, I still experience the racism. And all of us are all uh, mostly um, brown women and black women. I went to a, I went to a Pueblo and they wouldn't even hand me my money. They threw it down. They wouldn't talk to me. So why is that? Why is that? Because the poison is within us. And how does the poison work on me? The poison works on me as erasure, invisibility, pain, and woundedness. And I could be paralyzed in that moment, which maybe I am every time because it's just another rejection that I've been having since I was four years old. Same rejection, and it doesn't matter who the people are because of the poison that's within all of our blood systems. Hmm. All of our blood systems. For me, my heart just gets very heavy when I hear about just these stories. And you say early in the book that the rejection of rituals in medieval China and Chan, was that somehow an erasure of indigenous peoples? And you said the theme of your book essentially is if the shamanic bones or the indigenous roots that were suppressed in the rising of Buddhism, if they were unearthed, would Zen Buddhism make more sense to people of color and indigenous people? And when you're saying this about erasure, that's what's coming forward for me is, oh, there's an erasure of, once again, a whitewashing of this deep, profound, earth-based tradition. And it happens and it keeps happening. I don't necessarily see it even coming necessarily through us, even people of color who are there necessarily. We definitely have an opening eye to oppression. But I still think we too have been cut off. But I, I knew it when I went in. I knew because I have been in, in ceremony. I have been in many ceremonies. By the time I walked into Zen's, not only had I had ceremony, but I had, had been trained in concentration. So by the time I got in there, even though all of this was happening, it was sort of like an Aikido effect. <laughs> you see it and you keep going and you know what to do in order not to miss while you're there. Are black people gonna get what I got? Can I give them that medicine? 
or other people. I don't only have black students. I have all students, but can I give them that medicine that I got? Can I share that? When you speak about, can you give the medicine to the students of colors that you're ordaining? It seems, and, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, that the medicine you found in their rituals and ceremonies, including chanting and Zazen and Soto Zen tradition, do you feel that that was uh, intentionally transmitted through the Soto Zen lineage as it's expressed here at San Francisco Zen Center? Or is it that that's how, that's how the ancestors spoke to you is through these rituals? The latter. It only can be through you, only you. Only Heather students will be Heather students. And it will be transmitted through you as you are, not through me. I don't care how many books I write, I can write a hundred of them. What I mean, though, is that you found the medicine that helped heal this internalized oppression yeah. in spite of the way the structure of Zen Center? Right, in spite of, because the structure of Zen Center is the structure of the world. Again, it's no different than when I walk out that door. It doesn't get all different. And I don't think it gets different for anybody personally. I don't think I'm special <laughs> that way. <laughs> I think it's the same. Either you got privilege or you don't. When you walk out that door, you walked in with the privilege, you walk out with the privilege, you walk in with no privilege, you walk out with no privilege, because that's the system we live in in the United States. Okay, which we have people who work on that, who do great work, great work. I bow to them. I, I express gratitude to them. It's not the work I chose. The work I chose for my students, even when they see me, we have a, a thing about we don't talk about whiteness. And so one student did one time she was talking about whiteness and it was a very beautiful analysis of white consciousness. It was wonderful. I said, now, can you do that for about blackness? Tell me about blackness. She had no words. Everyone's too busy trying to get white consciousness and invoking white consciousness, invoking white supremacy, invoking white, 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 everyone. Even people of color, white, white, white. And as long as we're invoking it, that's what we get. Shamanically, that's, we, we get more of it. We reify it. Well, then let's not keep invoking it. And I, I apologize for invoking oh. it. It's okay. We have to talk about it. Practicing Zen saved my life. Yeah. And that's because of the ancestors, warm hand to warm hand transmission, including all the women of color who were erased from the lineage. All those women we chant are of color. They're there. Yeah, they're, they're there now. They weren't yeah. always, of course. Yeah, they still aren't recognized. Yeah, I know yeah, by yeah. some people. When you speak of Zazen as a ritual, as a portal to the unseen, you say that Zazen is a seeing practice and you have a section in the book about this. I'd love to hear more about Zazen as a seeing practice. Like I say, we call it a sitting and we're sitting to see though. We're not just sitting. Some people are seeing how long they can sit and they practice on how long they could sit. My experience is a lot of masculine energy involved in how long can I sit without it being a seeing practice, without it being experienced as, as a ritual in a portal. Like an endurance test, you're saying? Yeah. Yes. So, well, I agree. There's a, there's a lot of that in Zen practice, which people turn away from, but it's also in the world. 
because everyone in Zen wants an A, which and my students are all black mostly. They are run the gender gamut and they are looking for A's. That's the system of America. Uh, got to be number one. It's not the system of Eastern thought and thinking. It's, there's no number one at all. There is an, this in, endurance test that is, I think, brought on by being American. United States American, whatever that is, mm -hmm. this sort of sitting, but sitting to see, even if you don't see anything, mm -hmm. as you might not see anything. And that seeing is not with these eyes or this mind, even you don't know what you're going to see, you might end up with an oracle. I had even no clue as to what it was. People had to tell me proof that something can come from someplace else that you have never imagined. The question is, what is so scary or what is the impetus to erase that wonder, that magical shamanistic aspect, whether it's Soto Zen or some other tradition? Is it just from the rationality? Is it because it's mostly predominantly male power structures that are kind of erasing that I don't know if it's a feminine yeah, quality. I think it, it could be and could not. Although I, the first time I got the Oracle, I went to the National Women's Studies Conference and I brought my Oracle with me and they laughed at me. All these very brilliant, super white, black, purple, and green. Like, who does she think she is? What the hell is that? They were all in academia. Of course, that didn't fit for them. That's the thing. Our intelligence is measured by how well we do in school. Do you have a PhD? <laughs> I did. But you know what? What the hell? We uplift male spiritual teachers that seem to be sages and mystics and things like that. But we're still basing it on how, how intelligent one is. In other traditions, as you know, and other Buddhist traditions, they do chanting before they practice Sazen to get that Hara energy, to get the energy, whether you say through the chakras, if you use more of a yogic right. terminology or yes. having it come up through the, exactly. the root all the way up to the third eye. Yes. Um, so it's interesting, you know, yeah. in Soto Zen, we sit, we don't do the chanting till afterward. So this is something that I was always asking them to change. Instead of going to the Zendo, that we go to the Buddha hall and we chant, and then we go to the Zendo. And when I had my Sangha, we did the bells, we did the, you know, Han, all these things. We did the bowing, and then we, we chanted the robe chant, and then we went on chanting, 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 and then we sat, and they stayed awake. Tassahara, Paul Haller, during Sashin, he plays the wooden fish drum, the Makugio, in the afternoon when we're all sort of kind of sleepy. <laughs> and he plays that uh, Makugio, he holds it in his hand, and everybody's uh, chanting Enmejuku Kanengyo over and over. I don't know for how many minutes, maybe it feels like forever. Mm -hmm. And that energy is palpable in the Zendo. It's just the cave of emptiness is just flooded with all of this chanting energy, this one body, one mind, yeah. one energetic body, one energetic mind. I practiced with him there and I did that with him. 
I, I do know because he has another practice under his belt that he understands that beyond what we see with our eyes. I love that when he would, in the afternoons, we would chant and he would really make us chant it, really chant, chant, chant it. I think most traditions don't have sitting in Zazen as the portal. The portal is chanting. In most indigenous cultures, the, port, the portal is the drum and the dancing and the singing. It's the portal for Zen as well. It's just that somehow it got leaned over. That much of what was transmitted is what I think people felt comfortable with, but also with what they felt fit into the American society when they're bringing a practice that's counterculture to Christianity so that they could bring it, they could make it happen and have and be, you know, not suppressed or oppressed in doing so. And it worked, but also we lost something in that. Same thing with Christianity. I mean, there are the Christian mystics that were also. That's right. Um, that's all Christian was. Right. <laughs> they became the saints and they were seen as other than the regular people who weren't mystics. Although right. that spirit runs through everybody that separation of, oh, well, these people are saints, they're the mystics, and and you're not, okay, so then they get to be adored, right? And then slowly, even that mysticism, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a religious scholar, but slowly that mysticism was also cast aside. As a child, I didn't even know that when, they, when the priest would say the body and blood of Christ, that they really believe this is the transubstantiation. This was a miracle right there, that you were actually partaking of Jesus's body and blood, that Christ consciousness, and the Eastern perspective of that Christ consciousness, much different from what I inherited in my Roman Catholic upbringing. The symbolism of that ritual meant, meant a lot. But now they didn't think of it that way. It was just communion, but they really sat and said, like, this is the body. Like what they do in indigenous cultures when they actually do offer a body, a goat in the goat's blood. It's the same thing. But when bringing this into the Western world, things changed. So it became more symbolic, more symbolic, and more symbolic. I, I sit with it. Maybe this is the way it's to be. Do we have to go back or do we just recognize right now? The word I use is wonder. And you do use the word like the wonder awakening or the wonder... Uh, I don't know if I have it right here. The wonder working of the Buddha, the five higher knowledges, the supranormal or paranormal, many of which are what people say Christ also possessed. When some people would not say they believed in those miracles and other people who don't even believe, say, in a Christian God, like myself would say, oh, I can kind of believe that Jesus did those things, but I don't believe in these other aspects of the dogma. Right. The and then maybe it didn't happen. But right. the idea is to get across like Buddha walked in seven days. Okay, whoop, after he was born. At that time, it was a way of getting across to the people the magnitude of a, of a birth, not only his birth, there were other births too. That's how they talked about it. When someone came into being that they felt a particular energy from he was born out of the side of his mother. Right. All that. Same as Jesus being the immaculate conception, which all obviously that. scientifically is impossible, but just the, the um, storytelling, like you're saying. It's the way they talked about the shamanic experience. Yeah. Because you can't really talk about it. I really can't really talk about the experience of the Oracle. Mm -hmm. I don't even know why it works. 
And I still work with people with the cards and it's amazing. Thank you for listening to the first part of my conversation with Zenju. I will publish part two on June 19th. I hope you found our conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please support me by subscribing to my Spark Zen newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Ledesma Cantu and Alexis Girogopoulos. Thank you for listening.